Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. This is Jeremy. With me today in the studio is Mr. David Fletcher. How's it going? And recovered from his illness, we have Dr. Luke Dean. Hi. I feel much better, thanks. We missed you while you were gone. Yeah. It's good to see you upright and being able to breathe again and that sort of thing. In our last episode, we had the first part of an interview with Tanner Edis, and we are going to be getting to that interview in just a moment. We thought we'd start off with a little bit of Islam news today. I have an article here. This is from the UK Times. Muslim Britain is becoming one big no-go area is the title of the article. The name of the author is Shiraz Mar. The article discusses what is at least perceived on the part of some and including this particular author that Muslim communities in Great Britain are increasingly becoming isolated, almost forming their own little Muslim ghettos where not a lot of influence comes in and, unfortunately, not a lot of contact with the outside world is being experienced. And the author of this particular article believes that this is leading many Muslims in the area to become radicalized. They are making themselves victims to fundamentalists and extremists who might prey upon them. In the article, Marr mentions John Reed, the former Home Secretary in Great Britain. Just over a year ago, Reed was heckled by the Muslim extremist Abu Izzadeen in Laystone, East London, during a speech on extremism. Abu Azadeen said, how dare you come into a Muslim area? And the picture that they were getting that was that somehow, if you were not Muslim, you were not allowed into this portion of London. And the author of the article, Mark, goes on to say, the picture is mirrored outside of London. One of the country's biggest and most deprived Muslim areas is a small heath in Birmingham, where Dr. Tahir Abbas, director of the Center for Study of Ethnicity and Culture, was raised. He says it has as a dominant Asian monoculture, low social achievement, high unemployment. Says Heath is precisely the kind of insular and disengaged urban ghetto that was being spoken about. Marr explains his perception of the situation. Hair trigger sensitivities that have Muslim extremists respond to real or perceived insults with death threats violent demonstrations, murder and terrorism make it difficult or even impossible for non-Muslims to believe the claim that Islam is a religion of peace. Therefore, high birth rate among Muslims combined with a high legal and illegal immigration figures have Europeans and others worried about Muslims in their midst. Uh, the author himself is not is a Muslim. Mm -hmm. uh, he's not attacking Islam per se. But he's pointing out some of the social attitudes that are coming out of this. He goes on to talk about the influence of foreign language television stations, the idea being that this isolation becomes even more drastic when they can just turn on the television in their own homes and listen to Islamic programming or programming that will be very sympathetic to that cause. Quoting somebody else, Manzoor Mogal, chairman of the Muslim Forum, who also speaks out against these dangers, we have a cultural and social apartheid which fundamentalists 
thrive off. So the author obviously is very concerned about this. The fact that perhaps Muslims are becoming even more isolated from their culture, that this is going to make them a target for extremists to prey upon and use the frustrations that come out of that and recruit more people to their cause. What he says, of course, it's one of the saddening things about this is that it's not just non-Muslims that are targeted by some of these extremist attitudes. The author says of himself, after I wrote about the way that British Islamists celebrated Benzar Bhutto's assassination last month, a number of threats quickly appeared on the internet. If I meet him, I'm going to paste him in his face, wrote one. And another commentator said that this author should suffer severe punishments in this life and hereafter. Marr says their attitude springs from the Takafiri mindset, which in its most extreme form underwrites al-Qaeda's philosophy by suggesting that anyone who disagrees with Islamism, the extreme politicized form of Islam, is a legitimate target for attack. So making matters worse is even moderate Muslims who are trying to criticize this or at least warn their fellow Muslims that this is not healthy, being isolated culturally like this. Even they are being targeted and criticized and put down by their co-religionists, I guess you could say. Have you heard this week they had a series on NPR about this too? The, in Europe, like the Turkish community in Germany and in the Netherlands, they had a similar thing where they, they listed all the elements by which this isolation can occur. So, for example, when you move to a country, if you need a bride, let's say you're a guy who has a job in, in Western Europe, you mm -hmm. don't get one there. You go back to the home country from some village there and your extended family sets you up with one. So this person comes over, the bride comes over, and doesn't have any integration in the community. And so in some ways, these immigrants are more conservative mm -hmm. than, let's say, in, in the secular people in Turkey would be. And they set up, like you said, independent communities because they can select their own people. And these people don't know anybody, so they and they certainly don't know any Western Europeans like Germans or whatnot. So they have to stay within that community. They don't speak the language. Mm -hmm. They're not required to integrate. Hmm. So psychologically, a lot of these this community, they build up allegiance to their extended community there because they're so different from this secular Europe with, you know, they see like pornography or things that they consider explicit and it makes them, you know, even more turn inward into their own community. We integrate our uh, communities here much more more able than the other Western European countries. If you look at, like, is Islamic people and Muslims in, in the United States, this huge community that we have in Michigan, and I think Dearborn is sure, the largest yeah, outside of Palestinians outside of the Middle East. And yeah. uh, they don't share the, what you see in Western Europe, this alienation. They like America. They, they appreciate that they can, right. you know, even though they do have somewhat of a separate culture with if you drive through, you definitely know you're in that type of neighborhood. Mm -hmm. they, it's not nearly as, as, as isolationist. If you live in an isolated locality, you don't have to worry about the total outsiders because that's just a foregone conclusion. That sure. you know, but what you have to worry about are the splinter, the people that are really a threat to, let's say, a fundamentalist community are those waverers, the fence sitters. Mm. Those are the people, and that's why you know you look at Dante's Hill. It's it's the people that are in group that change or that that suffer the worst punishments, not just the total outside people. You hold people the the uh, apostates to a higher standard. Because those are the ones you have to worry about. They're the biggest threat to the community. So that's why you have, like, Muslim women's rights advocates who say, you know, you should get a divorce if your husband beats you. Those people suffer the worst punishments sure. often because they do represent a threat that Western people wouldn't.
They are separated by language when you move to this new country and you're separated by economics, often these are poor areas, the religion gets added to that and then somehow you want to attribute everything to that and say these people are right. not just different from me because I'm poor or I don't speak the language, but they're morally different because they're you know, Christians and I'm Muslim. And you use the social identity theory says that you look at aspects of your group identity and then you derive self-esteem from that by saying – and, you know, and, and think about what a boost it would be. Instead of saying I'm a poor Muslim who doesn't speak this Western European language, you can say I'm a member of an elite community mm. and, and we're, you know, better than those decadent Westerners and we're going to, you know, and now they're coming in our neighborhood. It's, it's very self-esteem uh, boosting to think that way. So what, is, what does that do, Luke, then on the other side? Because they had a poll in a different article here called um, Muslims Must Do More to Integrate, says UK poll from the UK Telegraph, is asking the question whether or not the situation has gotten so far that we can consider many of these Muslim areas to be no-go areas, to be completely isolated where, where non-Muslims are not welcome. Mm-hmm. 35% of Britons agreed with the statement. 38% disagreed and the rest were unsure. 56% were critical of the failure of Islamic communities to integrate into society and only one in four felt that they had been successful. And so what I'm wondering, Luke, is what does this do to the other side? I'm sure group identity goes both ways, right? So uh, how much of the perception of non-Muslims might begin attributing crime in these areas, hostility and things uh, strictly to religious factors and not to things like yeah. language. And well, that's one thing that, we, you know, we're going to talk uh, about this th- through the show today, but um, that people <clears throat> need to separate factors of as economics, culture, language from the religious aspect. That's one that is apparent because of the re- religious devices that people use to, to say, look at me, I'm wearing a skull cap uh, or, I'm, you know, I'm wearing a yarmulke or a cross. That, and people latch onto that as the primary difference. So, yes, the, out, the, the, the outsiders, uh, I guess if you want to call it that, not in a paradoxical sense, the Western Europeans attribute anything then to the fact that they're Muslim, not that they might be disenfranchised or, you know, people that live, uh, that, that haven't been integrated into the community. Mm-hmm. There's actually even an interesting argument that, you know, Western Europe prides itself on having lots of immigration and you could it's relatively easy to get into like those countries in Canada uh, that that has gone too far in that they've been you know the liberal position is all multicultural differences are good if you have if you want to do genital mutilation hey that's your religion and you shouldn't hmm. uh, mess with that person or if you want to you know have different um, status of women that's part of your culture but I guess a conservative argument is that that has resulted in this that you have that these things should be confronted that anybody coming to let's say the Netherlands should receive this is what the country is about free speech you know rights Mm -hmm. of women Mm -hmm. and that if you want to be here you need to learn these things rather than just come on come in and we're not going to make an effort to and bring your own culture yeah surprised I'm here myself saying this but there might be an aspect to the conservative argument not in the sense that they should just shut out all immigration but you know you have to look at the differences uh, of why has the United States been successful in integrating its community and it might be because our immigration pace has been more slow those people had were kind of you know they couldn't just set up their own little shop in their own kind of ghetto area where they only speak their language with nobody coming around saying hey you need to you know do this right. although what about um especially in New York and and big immigrant cities when you have where you have little Italy and Chinatown isn't that 
kind of the same thing? I think no. the argument that I've heard is that with New York, there's so many of them that now no one group has dominance. And there's even people that tried to do the percentages in kind of an economic sense that, it, that if you have like, you know, let's say in, in Germany, if you have like, say, 85% Germans and 15% Muslims that, uh, from Turkey, that's such a large group from Turkey that mm. it's basically set up, you know, a dual society, a parallel society. Right. Whereas in New York, you'll have, you know, maybe there's 60% white European background people that live from New York, but then you'll have people from India, people from Pakistan, mm-hmm. people from, you know, Haiti and Puerto Rico, and that there's so many other of those things that you have to... Yeah. You're living next door to people from, from five different cultures, and so no one group can set up a monolithic second society. Sure. There's so many small little groups that they're all dependent on each other. Not that that's true for everybody because you do have, say, like, say the um, Hasidic Jews have kind of, you know, like in Brooklyn, they have sure. similar things. But it's much less of a case that you, you, you're forced to in something that New York, there's so many crazy things going on with different cultures that you kind of have to integrate. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to set up a little, your own little kingdom. I, I think it's it's funny how um, – we feel because because I felt the same thing you were saying when you said that you you said I can't even believe I'm saying this. Isn't it funny how when we see some sort of attitude that we or philosophy that we don't like, like you know, if, if you're in this country, learn to speak English, or you're not you're not an American, and when we see those conservative reactionary viewpoints, our tendency then is to go in the complete opposite direction and perhaps overshoot balance by then, you know, complete and total acceptance of all cultural ways of doing things and any criticism at all becomes tantamount to racism. No. You do, the liberals are often in a funny position because, like I said before, they do have this multicultural thing where everything is equal. There's no one dominant culture. You should treat people no matter if their views seem mm-hmm. weird with respect. But then they run up against, like, say, the role of the thing with feminists. Uh, often they have they encounter a culture where it's a different culture and they're supposed to respect that, but then the culture doesn't respect women. So do you criticize the culture then and turn into a right-wing sounding authoritarian like they should learn? to treat their women better like we do or do you or do you say uh you know hey all differences are we respect your right to be different mm-hmm. it does put you in a paradoxical position mm-hmm. are some rights actually universal to where the culture needs to know them like you know equality of women free speech freedom of religion do you tolerate people that are intolerant it's no doubt it's a difficult philosophical terrain mm-hmm. <laughs> to 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 distinguish that i mean if you're going to say look these are certain certain values they're not strictly empirical facts, but these are certain values that we're going to esteem and at the same time be admitting of the diversity of perspectives and and the need to the need to be open minded when looking at those perspectives. When you get into the business of starting to draw lines, that's that's really tough philosophical terrain. And when one of your core values is valuing other people's values, <laughs> yeah. Well, then it's very that money. gets very tricky. We just it's, turned it's, into right wing talk radio. It would <laughs> it would much well it would be much easier intellectually to take the attitude of right wing radio or uh, or a fundamentalist attitude and reduce complexity and just say, well, look, my way is eternal, correct, and absolute, and everybody else needs to get in line with that. I think a lot of skeptics and free thinkers are not blessed or cursed with that ability to do that. We have to we have to have some level of nuance in our answers. Let's move into the second part of our interview with Tanner Edis to get more on this subject. 
my understanding is that you were never uh, that your parents weren't Muslim themselves. No, no. no. Uh, but you grew up in that sort of society and were exposed to it early on. Yes, m- my personal history is that my mother's American, and my first language is English, mm-hmm. and my father's Turkish. And both of my parents come from very secular backgrounds that are fairly indifferent to organized religion. So I've never been a devout Muslim in any sense. But you are in a good position to perhaps help secularists, naturalists to understand Islam, I would, I would think, in a way that, uh, that others aren't because of your personal experience with it. The new atheists is the term that's being thrown around to talk about this recent string of best-selling books from a skeptical perspective, one of which is Sam Harris's book, uh, The End of Faith. Sam Harris, the way I understand it, he sort of scoffs at the idea of anything such as a moderate Muslim and makes some pretty strong cases about how perhaps some of the violent tendencies and some of the more uh, fundamentalist tendency of Islam do flow straight from the Quran. And yet, so I hear that, and uh, and then I read uh, other other books that are defending Islam, saying that it, it is a peaceful religion, that there is a very strong sense of tolerance that extends all the way back to Muhammad himself, Muhammad being a ruler, how he dealt with subjects that had not converted. And so I am sometimes in a position where I don't know who to believe. I'm wary of apologists trying to whitewash the truth, but at the same time, I don't want to be militant and attack a religious belief that I'm not familiar with. My response to views like Harris's or the uh, views that say Islam is a peaceful religion is to say that, strictly speaking, none of these are true, and all of these are, to a certain degree, partially true, in that put yourself in a position of, say, you are trying to explain Christianity to somebody who, say, grew up in the Muslim world and didn't have much of an idea of what Christianity was all about. Mm -hmm. You would presumably have a hard time pointing at something that defined Christianity as a whole you would sort of start talking about, well, when you talk about Christianity, it's very diverse. I mean, you have Protestants, you have Catholics, you have Eastern Orthodox, and you have all those divisions within them. You have more liberal versions, conservative versions. It's total chaos. Mm-hmm. And you would not say, for example, point to, uh, say, a Christian view of, I don't know, uh, the invasion of Iraq. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing. There are many different Christians with many different views who very often very strenuously disagree with each other. This is true for any world religion, and it's true no less with Islam. There is no such thing as an Islamic view of violence in that there is no such thing as uh, – there is no true Islam. So if anybody is telling you that true Islam is a religion of peace, what they really mean is that the kind of religion that they believe in as being the true divine message in their interpretation is peaceful. But it does not describe a sociological or a historical fact. Mm -hmm. The sociological or historical fact, and especially if you are a more secular-minded person, uh, you're probably going to be less interested in what people say is a divine revelation as what are the facts on the ground. And... When you look at those, you'll find a very large variety. 
Let's get back to the sort of question of, say, moderate Islam, because often there is a sort of irritating question raised of where are the moderate Muslims? But in my experience, personally speaking, I, of the people I know as friends, some of my relatives and so forth, the moderate Muslim is a much more familiar figure to me than any sort of bomb-tossing fanatic. People who are very liberal in their social attitudes, people who are very peaceful in their orientation towards politics and so forth, but yet identify themselves as devout, God-fearing Muslims, uh, this is what I'm most used to. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, my personal experience is not necessarily what you might call a, a good statistical sampling of the Islamic world as a whole. You have to go beyond anybody's personal experience. Right. And in that case, uh, then too you find, I believe, that when you look at Muslims, uh, you will largely find peaceful, even boring, everyday people. <laughs> you will find the religion of shopkeepers, uh, a religion of people uh, trying to uh, make the bus on time rather than people who are spending their time uh, perusing jihadist websites. Even when you look at, say, for example, theologies and things like that, you have to recognize that there's a large diversity out there. Again, let me give you an example that's closer somewhat to my experience. Uh, so in Turkey, for example, if you talk about Islam in Turkey, there is no single Islam in Turkey. Okay, the majority of the population follows the sort of uh, Sunni Islam that tends to define orthodoxy. But nearly a quarter of the Turkish population actually follows uh, what's known as the Alevi sect. Now, Alevi people, they consider themselves Muslim. They consider themselves very devout, and they believe in the supernatural with an intensity that will rival anybody. But Alevis will not go to mosque. Alevis will have religious rituals in audiences where men and women are together. Alevis will not take seriously what mullahs will tell them. Hmm. They will essentially ignore the whole body of orthodox Sunni Islamic law developed over the centuries. And so what you find over here is that here is a population that's, uh, that is based in rural Turkey that is very liberal in their attitudes and very peaceful. Almost like Quaker Muslims. Very much so. So if, if you're talking about Christianity, and if you're ever reluctant in drawing Christianity, sort of trying to fit it into one box, and if right. you find yourself saying that, well, of course, if you're talking about Christianity, maybe they're the Jerry Falwells of the world, but they're also the Quakers, they're also the Eastern Orthodox, which people in the United States know very little about, so on and so forth. Well, yeah, the same thing goes for the Islamic world. And the Alevis in Turkey are as much a part of the Islamic world as the Taliban in Afghanistan uh, or the mystical sects in Indonesia and so on and so forth. Getting away from some of the more exaggerated stereotypes, such as characterizing all Muslims as jihadists or of, of endorsing violence, my understanding is that government and religion are much more closely tied than they have been in the dominant Judeo-Christian traditions in the West. With immigration on the rise now in Europe, could that become a legitimate threat to secularization in the West, or is this just another type of fear-mongering? Uh, both. Uh, it's both in the sense that uh, Muslim immigration to Europe, not so much the United States, but Europe, is a matter of concern in that it may have effects in changing the character of these societies. 
and uh, directly and indirectly by provoking uh, nominally Christian reaction may possibly, this is just speculation, nobody really knows, but possibly lead to a revival of religious attitudes even in politics Mm -hmm. in Europe. That's probably a far shot. Now, when it comes to the notion of religion and politics, uh, it is definitely true that in the Muslim tradition of political theology and in the historical experience of majority Muslim parts of the world, the kind of separation of church and state and secularization that we have come to think of uh, as framing our politics in the West, this has not happened. But the first way we should respond to this is not by looking at the Christian experience and trying to fit Muslims into that box. Mm -hmm. Just because Muslims do not generally go with the notion of secularization that we are familiar with, the sort of Protestant version of secularization, does not therefore mean that Muslim attitudes towards religion and politics are equivalent to, say, medieval Catholicism Mm -hmm. or the historical practice of the Eastern Orthodox Church in the Byzantine Empire. Muslim historical experience is different, and you have to look at it separately and take it on its own terms. And there you will find that even though Islam is always, for Muslim societies, the final reference in terms of legitimization, including political legitimization, this has not always meant clerical control of societies. In fact, clerical control of societies is actually very rare Hmm. in Islamic societies. For example, the Iranian theocracy is really a historical oddity in many ways. And you will find that in practice, the Muslim empires have very often reached an accommodation between secular and religious spheres of law and influence that approaches de facto church-state separation in many cases. Hmm. Uh, Because Islamic law, the resources which it draws upon, which are the Quran and to a large extent the prophetic traditions, are actually fairly limited in the extent of what they can provide in the details of day-to-day running of a large state. So even though the legitimacy of this has always been iffy from a theological point of view, The Islamic world has always involved alongside Islamic laws that have been uh, discussed and uh, have been kept in custody by the Islamic scholars. Alongside Islamic law, they have always included imperial law Mm -hmm. and various other versions of secular law that are going to run the situation. Now, of course, what we have still, the Islamic tradition ends up having a regulatory role of the whole thing. So uh, the imperial law could never sort of completely break loose and go its own way. However, it has had, historically speaking, a fair amount of leeway. And very often, say, for example, in the Ottoman Empire, the sultans would go and do one thing, sometimes even blatantly violate Islamic law when there was Islamic law against it. And typically what has happened is that they got away with it because they had the political power. Now, this is not, again, I'm not trying to paint a picture saying that Islam really allows for church-state separation Uh, No, not at all. Still, you have this notion that uh, the imperial law, secular law equivalents are always conditioned by a religious sensibility 
and always at the end of the day have to have some sort of religious legitimacy. Otherwise, it's not going to go. So from the point of view of somebody like myself, who is a staunch secularist, who is most comfortable in uh, a strictly secular political environment, Mm -hmm. who identifies with secular interests, an Islamic polity is going to be unacceptable. It's going to be something to worry about. But this does not mean that if you have, say, a more Islamically colored political environment, it does not mean that your life is going to be run by Muslim scholars. It's not a slippery slope. Right. Tying it all together, the role of naturalists, um, of perhaps secular humanists, of skeptics of religion, we have our own agenda in society and at least in America – Um, We are not in the majority. Uh, So we're interested in putting forward critiques of religion, of challenging the legitimacy of revelation and uh, certain doctrines. In your mind, what are the responsibilities of scientific naturalists, of agnostics, atheists, in dealing with Islam? Should we be forcefully critiquing their doctrines? Should we ease off uh, a little bit and perhaps try not to radicalize them by convincing them that they can't uh, accept science and Islam at the same time? What do you think is our moral responsibility in trying to uh, – Respond to Islam? Yeah, in responding to the cultural changes that will be taking place over the next decade in the West? Hmm. Hard question. One thing I should say, though, is uh, let's not exaggerate the importance of (laughs) what secularists uh, might do. Very small impact. Uh, So in the sense that I wouldn't worry about radicalizing Muslims because they don't really pay much attention to what, say, a scientific naturalist based in the United States is going to be saying necessarily. Right. So given that we're talking about some very small influence over here, I don't think but pl- I, politically I mean, there's I mean much in much our societies about. too because in, in Europe, which is predominantly secular. Sure. Um, Maybe it's clearer how we should not respond to Islam and that mm-hmm. way is the way that say Sam Harris has done. Mm-hmm. And if you look at say Sam Harris's response to Islam in his book The End of Faith, it's, a w- it's associating Islam with violence and terror and the way of supporting this is – listing a number of pages of quotations from the Quran, which are quite honestly violent and disgusting in nature. Mm -hmm. However, this does not reflect Muslims' own understanding of the religion, and you do need to pay some attention to that. And you do need to pay attention to what scholars of Islam are saying about Islam. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Sam Harris's book and you look at his footnotes, there is no reference whatsoever almost to the scholarly literature about Islam, its theology, its politics, its history, nothing. Just a couple of books uh, that were written by uh, people with Israeli and U.S. nationalist connections. That's what I've heard, that he uh, – a lot of his sources are taken from pretty pretty reactionary exactly. propaganda. But never mind the political aspect of the things. Uh, what Sam Harris has done is extremely bad scholarship. Mm-hmm. And secular humanists in particular cannot afford to be associated with transparently sloppy scholarship of this sort. Hmm. 
I think our first responsibility is a scholarly one. And I'm sure I'm saying this partially because that's my own background. (laughs) But if we're going to critique Islam, and I think Islam should be criticized, there's a lot there to criticize. Uh, But if we're going to do it, we should do it right in a proper scholarly form, in that we should first try and understand Islam as best as we can, and also realize that in many cases, our understanding is inevitably going to be limited. And that's true in my case, too. And I, I grew up in an Islamic society. I may know a lot about, say, Islamic apologetics, Islamic theology, so on and so forth. But this is different than, say, a lived experience of being a Muslim. True. Try and understand as best as we can the variety of what we're criticizing and not try and sort of uh, propagate this myth of the one true Islam. We have to recognize that we're criticizing a number of different religious orientations with some common themes, but very often at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, get things right. If, if, if anybody is going to criticize Islam, they should first talk to Muslims, crack open a couple of books and try as best as they can to get what Muslims' views are from a Muslim point of view, not just read critics of Islam, Mm -hmm. and uh, try and engage that way. What can our listeners who are hearing this conversation and might might be having a moment of realization saying, I really don't know much about Islam, um, in what direction would you point them, other than, of course, your own very good book, uh, An Illusion of Harmony, which we will have a link to on our website, www.doubtcast.org. Where would you point them? In order to try and get a basic background of Islam? To start. Well, uh, go ahead and visit your local large bookstore or visit your local public library and If you want a basic introduction to the kind of things that, say, Muslims believe, uh, do start out with picking up some sort of popular introduction to the sort of Islam for dummies kind of books. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, do this with the idea that these are written from an apologist's point of view. Uh, do, Do these with the idea that these books are written with the idea of presenting the best face of Islam possible and that much of this is going to be, say, uh, historical distortions, et cetera, et cetera. But that's okay, Uh, especially people who are inclined towards secular humanism tend to be well-educated people who don't need to be told how to read a book of religious apologetics. You read it with a grain of salt. But really, this is how you should start. You should start by trying to understand how Muslims think about their own religion. Mm -hmm. After that, if you get more interested, well, you take it from there. You, you uh, You read some different books. You talk to some of your local Muslims around in your neighborhood. It depends on your level of interest. Thank you very much for joining us, Tanner Edis. I appreciate you coming on Reasonable Doubts. It was a very enlightening discussion. Well, thank you for having me on. So I was really happy to have Tanner Edis on the show. Absolutely. And he definitely brings a perspective that I think I think people need to hear and I think secularists need to hear. And what's great about him is that he's somebody in our movement 
not to say that we can't listen to somebody who isn't, but but to say that I, I know for myself, when I hear people defending Islam, always in the back of my mind is the wonder if this is an analogous situation to what I am familiar with, which is Christianity, mm-hmm. wondering if this is just apologists, if there's any validity to what's being said, or if people are just playing fast and loose with the Quran and emphasizing the good parts, not being completely honest. So somebody who I already sort of trust as having a critical and skeptical mind, hearing it from them makes a big difference to me. Tanner Edis said some critical things about Sam Harris. For those half a dozen or so listeners out there not familiar with Sam Harris's argument. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you briefly distill Sam Harris's argument? Well, let me, uh, let me read just a couple of paragraphs from an article he wrote, Bombing Our Illusions, from the Huffington Post. He says, Open the newspaper today or tomorrow or almost any day for many years to come, and you will discover some pious Muslim has deliberately blown himself to bits for the purpose of killing infidels or apostates. It is likely the bomber was male, middle class, and comparatively well-educated. It is especially likely that he was guided by a sincere expectation of spending eternity in paradise. There is a direct link between the doctrines of Islam and Muslim terrorism. Anyone who imagines that terrestrial concerns account for Muslim terrorism must answer questions that follow the sort. Where are the Tibetan Buddhist suicide bombers? They do not exist. The difference lies in the specific tenets of Islam. This is not to say that Buddhists could not inspire suicidal violence, but it concedes absolutely nothing to say that for the apologists of Islam. Sam Harris insists on making a very strong connection between Islam, between the Quran and those beliefs, and suicide bombing. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's going to deny that politics and other things play a role, but he is very firm on insisting that the religious connection has an awful lot to do with it. I believe one of the things he said in Letter to a Christian Nation was that a lot of Muslims are deranged by their religion that it will be very difficult to find a moderate Muslim. Now, Sam Harris is also critical of the other monotheistic faiths, aren't he? I mean, he's mentioned things in the Bible and the Torah that are Mm -hmm. equally barbaric. Yeah. Now, is he suggesting then that, yes, there's a certain level of barbarity in all religion, but that Islam is just the first among many in terms of uh, its propensity to develop violence? That, say, it's it's on the scale of religion promoted violence, it's like 98, and then Christianity is 95, and Judaism is 90, Um, and then you could rank it all the way down to Buddhism at the bottom. I, I get I get the impression that that is where he's coming from. When, when he says not all religions teach the same thing and not all of them teach it equally well, I think that's what he has in mind, that uh, some some religious worldviews are going to be more dangerous and more prone to violence than others. Mm-hmm. And he definitely fits Islam at being right near the top. That's number one. If not the top. Mm-hmm. He says, all civilized nations must unite in condemnation of a theology that now threatens to destabilize much of the earth. Muslim moderates, wherever they are, must be given every tool necessary to win the war of ideas with their co-religionists. Otherwise, we will have to win some very terrible wars in the future. But now I've just uh, misrepresented him. I I don't know if that was the greatest excerpt to read. I'm pretty much invalidating the take that I was going to do on this. But... This article must be post-end of faith or something, Mm -hmm. because I'm not so sure he was preaching we must help 
the moderates reform. No, in fact, Sam Harris is kind of the, the leading enemy of religious moderates. Yeah, he I, says I that, thought that, that was the case, too. religious moderation <laughs> makes it more permissible to be a religious extremist. No, but here's the problem is that we're, we're treating the term moderate as if it's an entity that out there that is unaffected by the actions of everybody else. That is, you can make somebody go from moderate to extreme. They aren't just like some thing stamped on their head. It's the same rationale as President Bush saying, we'll just kill all the terrorists. Well, what if your actions of going out and wiping things out is creating more terrorists from people who are on the fence? There's like a right. bell curve of propensity. Right. So to assume that there's a pool of moderates out there, they will always be moderate no matter what you do. You just have to, you know, and then a pool of fundamentalists and extremists ignores the thing that if you can create an extremist out of a moderate yeah. by your, let's say, political action. So if we, let's say there's a Turkey, you know, it's very secular and there's a lot of moderates. Let's say that we go and invade their neighboring country, cause a refugee crisis, start criticizing Islam. We just, then just created yeah. people. And so the, uh, if Harris's criticism is that Islam is some set entity of a risk factor, that if you're Islamic, that boosts your risk. Well, how does he, you know, maybe the, the, uh, the more complex way to look at this, that might be one of, of the risk factors. But if somebody invades your country or you feel that your culture is under siege, then you start answering and these increases. polls like, well, is it OK to bomb people? Yeah, maybe it is if you're under attack. The other factors we're not looking at are cultures that are under threat. Israel doesn't have suicide bombers because they have M1 Abrams tanks that we send. Thank you very right. much for the United States. So back Back 50 years ago, when the country of Israel was establishing, they did have suicide bombers. The president of Israel, uh, Itzhak Shamir, in the 70s, and Menachem Begin were members of a group called Irgun, which was basically a Jewish terrorist organization that bombed mm -hmm. the British out mm -hmm. of Palestine. They bombed British and Palestinian targets to provoke a conflict that would cause the British to say, screw this, we're out of here. Then Israel becomes powerful. They don't need terrorists anymore because... Why would you have those tactics? It's a tactic. Right. That's kind of what I thought when we had a couple summers ago. We had, was it Lebanon? Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Hezbollah it, was fighting Israel over uh, in South Lebanon. Right. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we were getting these reports that were coming in about how, of course, Israel was going to be raking up quite a bit of <laughs> what's, what's the nice little euphemism, collateral damage. Mm -hmm. they, of course, uh, innocent civilians were being bombed and, and everything else, but it was because the Muslims were using them. I shouldn't even say the Muslims. It was Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. Hezbollah was using their own their own families as human shields. Well, that's certainly not right either. But at the same time, are you going to go right into the open? <laughs> if you are outgunned and they're coming for you, wouldn't you fight in the most dirty tactics you possible to win a conflict? If, that if the United States wasn't invaded or occupied or somehow technologically, you know, if all we had was sticks and stones against fighter jets, that there wouldn't be Christian terrorist groups that would develop that said, strap a bomb on and you'll go straight to Jesus if you fight the overlord, you know, Muslim overlords. You cannot tell me that that would not happen. It fits perfectly well into that as, as yeah. an ideology. Sam Harris suggests that suicide bombing is kind of the worst thing imaginable that a, a person could do. Certainly it's horrible, but isn't bombing someone and living to bomb another day even worse? Look at Northern Ireland of a decade or so back. We had Catholics and Protestants bombing each other on the subways and, and everywhere else. And sure, it wasn't suicide bombing, but it was bombing that they felt because of their religious beliefs was permissible. Any, anytime you have a conflict, and, and I would agree with Harrison that religion can make it worse and that it can give you things like a, a transcendent, you know, you're going to go straight to heaven type of thing. Absolutely. But it's just simply uh, it works itself into any other political conflict. Political ideologies can do the same thing, not yeah. necessarily heaven, but, but this will make me a martyr. This will make me a hero. Right. I'm usually pretty defensive of Sam Harris. 
I've read one of his books, and I've read several of his articles and watched some interviews, and I've always found the core of his message that we need to get rid of these social taboos that we have about criticizing faith. I very much can get behind, but I do wonder sometimes if people like Harris, who are trying to point out the fact that religion can be a very dangerous thing, are not overstating their case a little bit. Aren't there many more simple ways that aren't quite as extreme as starting wars or su- or recruiting suicide bombers, fueling ethnic conflicts? Aren't there much simpler ways that religion can be a negative thing that people should be aware of that don't require us to point out those extremes? Right, and I agree. I think the Harris's central idea that these taboos and, and sacred cows need to be taken down as far as his big thing is that moderate religion is kind of a gateway drug. Moderate religion makes it permissible to be an extremist. And to some extent, I agree, because obviously if there weren't moderate Christian, it would make it harder to be a Christian extremist. But I think talk like that is cutting off a lot of people who can help with the war, conflict, uh, whatever, against extremism. Right. Moderation can be a good thing as long as I, I don't care what people believe, as long as they're not blowing me up because of it or trying to legislate their beliefs. That's fine. Yeah, I, I'm I'm where you are, Dave. I, I don't, or at least I think I am. But again, I'm torn because I honestly do, going out on a limb here, but I, I honestly find many fundamentalists to have more intellectual integrity than their liberal counterparts, at least when it comes to the doctrines of the faith. Right. To me, the amount of self-serving interpretations that you'll hear from a liberal religionist, to me, they're mind-boggling, the forms the arguments take and the the inconsistencies in them and the standards of evidence sure. um, that but, are applied to one side and then to themselves are just, it's completely without any real intellectual merit. Right. At least you know where you stand right. with an extremist, yeah. with... with uh, more <laughs> liberal groups at the same it's time hard to say at the same time politically and their attitudes towards society i think the religious liberals are right on and i think mm-hmm. they're the best hope of us i don't think the atheists are going to start drawing off fundamentalists in right. mass proportions right. i think the liberal <laughs> believers have a chance to to make a difference in that area. We're, we're confusing tactics and, and, and the ultimate, you know, ultimately, yes, I agree that liberal, a lot of liberal theology is just as bankrupt as conservative theology. But a tactical decision might be don't piss them off because we need them to help us on global warming or evolution. Yeah. Right. And so both those positions can be correct. It's just simply one is a, is a pragmatic position that mm-hmm. you adopt and say don't alienate moderates because we need them. But at the same time, you can still maintain your intellectual positions and that is, but I still don't believe the, the reasons that they're moderate are valid reasons. Right, but I, st- I still think you're wrong, but I think you're the lesser if you're nice of two because evils. A nice guy that's nice because he thinks Jesus wants him to be nice, that's nice that he's nice, but that doesn't mean that it's the correct it's reason the right to be reason. nice. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, was if the moderates are sheltering the fundamentalists to some degree by, by legitimizing faith and that sort of thing, well then, should we just not make a deal, big deal about that? I, uh, I think we do we need not? to make that that cultural argument that blind faith is not a virtue. Right. Um, we do need to, to keep making that argument, but saying, all right, we can <laughs> agree to disagree on some of these things, 
but the more perhaps the the more pressing issues like intelligent design and, and that sort of thing are places where we can agree. Well, and if you look at if you look at things historically, again, we'll mention the book Free Thinkers by Susan Jacoby. We're just going to have to get her on the show to talk about it. But she provides a very good history of how on many progressive causes, women's rights, suffrage, mm-hmm. uh, women's suffrage, um, the civil rights movements. Abolition. abolition. Yep, and abolition. That many times it was skeptics, the free thinkers, unified with the liberal religionists mm-hmm. that were the ones that together joined forces and really pushed a lot of these things Strange forward. Strange bedfellows, but yeah. it, it takes that we're not a big enough group on our own to cause that kind of, of social change. Absolutely not. So should should we continue I along think, that route? No, I think Could, that, and you also that – we that, want to threaten that? We should make common cause uh, with – I think that one thing with, with – back to your thing about, about radical Islam is that uh, – and this is especially something that annoys me is when a conservative person criticizes Islam like, you know, you get on these talk shows with – People like Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck, and they say, oh, mm. it's Islam is a bunch of suicide bombers. And we look at that and say, dude, you're just the same as them, except you don't have to blow yourself up. You have the same rigid ideology, right, the same right. right-wing authoritarianism. And that's the thing that liberals and skeptics, if you want to call us, need to form a coalition against is not the religion thing, but the authoritarianism. That is, right. whether it's Christian mm. or Islam or Jewish, that there's there's a tendency to be right-wing authoritarian that blends together with religious fundamentalism and f- perform, you know, this this mixture of political and religion admixture that makes for a toxic brew. You have, you know, authoritarian ideology, suppression of women against civil rights and, and basic rights, and, and it blends with the religion. God says so. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's a very appealing, sexy mixture, and that's the thing that we have to align ourselves against. The content of the religion, I think, in, and this is where we're disagreeing somewhat with Sam, might be secondary. It's the, it's the authoritarianism and other like traits like that. Right. And, and to say it's secondary, maybe we're answering the question here because maybe this is what role skeptics being critical of liberal religionists could play in a positive way is to keep – keep some of their fantasies in check. Because if the content is secondary, that is not to say that the content is irrelevant. Right. And this is sometimes mm-hmm. what you will hear from somebody who's more liberal in the religious perspective is that, oh, it, it's all good. Okay. And and it's just, it's just a perversion of a truly good faith when it results in violence. If we're there to try to keep that perspective in check keep it a little grounded in reality and say, no, 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 no. <laughs> These doctrines can be very, very dangerous in the wrong hands. No, I, yeah, I agree and with we you. need the, to focus on that. The Bible and the Quran and the Torah really do say barbaric things. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they do. And maybe calling attention to that can help keep the moderates from going too far off into outer space. But there's certain types of people that are drawn to that type of barbarity right. and simplicity that, you know, and this is kind of like we talked, I think, the other day about like in psychology of religion with the, the obedience Milgram paradigm. If somebody tells you to shock somebody, you shock somebody. Certain people that mm. are more authoritarian buy into that more. Uh, and if the Bible says, well, you know, I wouldn't have anything against Joe, but he's gay, so... I got to put him. To, I got to stone him. There are certain people that that appeals to, and the liberal right. religionists would balk and say, "Oh, you know, it couldn't say that." 
uh, I'm not going to go stone mm-hmm. him just stone him just because he's gay. And, you know, so the content matters, but also the the people interpreting it matter. It's a mixture of the two. Well, it's it's always so interesting the way perspectives meld and influence one another. Reflecting real quick on some conflicts I've seen amongst humanists, whether or not we are going to be knock down, drag out opponents of of dogma or whether or not we're going to be more sympathetic. You mm-hmm. know, it, it many times it occurs to me, well, why why are we talking as if there's one way to be here? Perhaps people like Harris play a role with, with a harder edge and perhaps some of the soft edge atheists and skeptics play another role and that, that we're all sort of necessary. Our influences will all blend and, and make change, hopefully, yeah, in a positive direction. When I heard Dawkins speak, he made kind of that same point and said that, in fact, maybe I'm not the best spokesperson for the movement, but I can't be that touchy-feely, oh, yeah, your beliefs are really interesting kind of guy. So he's filling one niche that we have, and we need to have other people who are not quite so in your face right. about it. And, and people we, who we can't just I... take one one of those perspectives. Right. Yeah, he agrees too. I heard him talking on the evolution issue that it's maybe his view is not politically expedient because it scares right. moderate Christians away from evolution by saying it does pave the road to atheism. Richard Dawkins says so. Absolutely. And he's agreed that that's not palatable in terms of a pragmatic agenda. You're scaring those people away. But there's other people that say, but mm-hmm. it's true. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we need both voices. Well, why don't we move on to something a little bit more lighthearted before the end of the show? We have a stranger uh, than fiction that happens to come right from our our own backyard as it were you know i have no qualms with calling this the story of the century i know we're only a few years into the century You're going out of limb here but this could be where it's all been headed towards absolutely <laughs> this is this is bigger than the Lindbergh baby um this is bigger than the oj simpson trial this was reported by one of our local news stations wzzm 13 well frankly we can only call the story jesus versus the wiener poopy what happened here was gene mansell a uh, resident in oakfield town had a 80-pound cement statue of Jesus stolen from her front yard. She was a very concrete believer. After Jesus disappeared, raptured up, no doubt, she found a ransom note in her mailbox. This is the actual news account because I, I, there's no way I can read this as well. It's fantastic. These are wiener dogs, we should say. These Did are wiener that? dogs. Yes, she has four little wiener dogs. The note basically said they were holding Jesus for ransom. The note reads, we are holding Jesus ransom until you clean up the poopy from your wieners and trust us, we see you take your wieners for long walks without picking up their poopy in our yards. This has upset us dearly, so please clean up all the wiener poopy if you want to see Jesus unharmed. I don't know that a better sentence has ever been written in the English language. Truly a creative gem. Shakespeare Shakespeare has nothing on these people. It's tremendous. So apparently Jean had been walking her four little wiener dogs and not picking up their, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Leavings. Poopy, actually, is is what I was looking for. And this upset some people in the neighborhood. 
So they stole her Jesus to make a point. And Jean is quite upset, and her reaction to this is, is really wonderful. It has to be a, a young person because no adult's going to waste their time doing that. And referring to wien, wiener poopy, my gosh. Now, Jean just wants her statue back and says she won't press charges if Jesus isn't harmed. And I thought, my gosh, something like that's going to be safe in your yard. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> now, the good news is, of course, that, that since this story originally aired uh, a week or so ago, Jesus has returned. Aww. Jesus has, has come back. He was the headline he the second coming then for that article? <laughs> if not, it should have been. Jesus is back and he's pissed. So Jesus is back and as it turns out... The perpetrators were family members. There's the shocker. It wasn't the local heathen community? It wasn't the local heathens. Because I had pegged them right away as this is a heathen theft. People never expect family, but... What still perplexes me about this, though, is, A, it's an 80-pound statue. That's pretty heavy Jesus. But there was snow on the ground. You know what's really easy to track in snow? Footprints. Footprints. I thought she um, did see footprints. Wasn't there something yeah, in the article about yes, that? Yes. Uh, there was footprints behind it and footprints in front of it, she says. Now, where the footprints came from and, and went to. Apparently, they came from, I don't know, her front door. So, Jesus is back. The poopy, hopefully, uh, also raptured away at some point. I don't know. Judging from watching the segment on television, I don't think she really learned her lesson. Yeah, what, what, what lessons can we derive is what I'm interested in the, the story here. What can we learn from this, Dave? Something about salvation, clearly. Someone's got to pick up the poopy in order for Jesus to return. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good... Yeah, yeah, that's almost a liberation theology message. There. Oh, well, absolutely. Could somebody derive the negative message that in order to spur people to action, you should rob them of their religious iconography and lawn ornaments? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Is this, is this a legitimate tactic? We were discussing suicide bombing before, and that's clearly out. If only we could refer to the holy text for this. They have instances where they say if you have a problem with your brother, you should you know, approach him first and then get another member. Maybe there could be something of if you have a problem with your brother's uh, poopy, that you approach him as a brother. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and yeah. if he still doesn't respond, then work your way up to. There was a biblical model for dealing with that. Mm. And that I didn't include I stealing Jesus. Clean up poopy your, for poopy. And he did clean up his sheep's leavings, and the Lord was pleased. Okay, we enjoy a, a good lowbrow moment as much as the next podcast, I guess. Well, to everybody out there, thanks for listening again. Till next time. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Josh Dunnigan helped with recording. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission.